Good morning. It's good to see you. For those of you who are uh, members at Broadmoor, I'm sorry about your pipe explosion. And your, I assume there's a, there was a pipe or a water, water thing that happened, so sorry, sorry that you uh, uh, had that happen to you, but obviously a great pleasure to see you. Uh, always love uh, to join brethren uh, together. So this, I, I've been thinking about something uh, quite a bit lately, and the study has come out of this. When considering I, our salvation, I think Satan's approach to the way he works on the minds of human beings is extremely interesting. Evil, but interesting. Here's what I mean. We have a world of people who are absolutely confident about their salvation. They, and I'm not talking about atheists, I'm just talking about people who believe in God. Though they know very, very little about what God requires of discipleship, they seem to have just a perfect confidence that when they die, they're going to go to heaven. And they believe that because they have, in most cases, created their own standard by which they would be saved. Their standard being a set of good deeds, living a generally moral life, and because of that, having the confidence that that's who God saves. God saves good moral people. And that's, that's fairly common. On the other hand, here's what's somewhat perplexing. We Christians recognize that we have sinned and we recognize that we do sin. And we recognize that we fall short of God's glory. And we believe that our only hope of salvation is in Jesus. We know full well that there is no hope apart from Him and that He is the only way that we can be saved. But Satan works on our minds. And it seems that the fact that we have this knowledge of the seriousness of our sins and of the seriousness of what we have done, that it is very difficult for us to completely accept that He is really going to save us. We say to ourselves, yes, I know he said he would, but how can that be? I know Jesus died for us, but still, I'm bad. <laughs> Sometimes I'm talking to Teresa, and I say, how you doing? And she says, I have a dark heart. I said, oh, stop it. <laughs> we struggle with it. How can that be? We've talked a lot of times about the promises of God and the surety that He gives with those promises. But this lesson is not about that. This lesson is, how could He possibly do that? In other words, why should we be assured of our salvation? How could it possibly be? What is the mechanism that makes it possible? I think I would be extremely disappointed if God revealed in the Scriptures basically what we have all repeated to ourselves over and over again, 
that he would just reveal in the scriptures, Jesus died for you, don't worry about it, I got this, no problem. I think my problem of salvation and hope of salvation would be even worse if that's what he did. And sometimes I think that is what most Christians have looked at. And they've just said, okay, he died for me. That's great. But what's this mechanism here that makes that possible? And do you know the passages in the Bible that come the, the, go the furthest in being able to explain that? And it is amazing that God does. He decided to go into great detail as to why you can have confidence in what Jesus did. Not Jesus just did it, don't worry about it, but he goes through a lot of details to how that happened, and it so happens that he does it in the book of Romans, and it so happens that the average Christian has a real struggle with understanding the book of Romans, and so we're back to square one. What really did you do, Lord? What is it about the death of Christ that actually makes this possible? So this introduces for us a little mini-series that I want to do on certain passages in Romans in which God repeatedly goes through the process of explaining what He did and how that works out in the big process of humankind. And what is this human effort that God, this effort that God put forth in order to solve the human problem? So this is where we will go. I want you to start here with the passage that we have read, that has been read for us by Jacob. I would like you to start here just with these words in verses 19 and 20. And please notice in the words certain phrases that should, uh, that should stand out to us. Notice here in verse 19, so that every mouth may be stopped, so that the whole world may be accountable to God. And then verse 20, that no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law. Have you ever, I know you have, <laughs> rhetorical question. Do you remember when you were caught red-handed doing something really bad? Do you remember the feeling in your gut? Do you remember the flush face that you had? Do you remember your heart rate going up? Do you remember all the adrenaline just bursting through your body? You have been caught red-handed. You have no explanation. You can't even speak. There's no cover-up. You did it. And now you know you have to suffer the consequences. I always thought of Gehazi. Remember him? When Elisha healed the leper, Naaman, and Gehazi tried to profit off of it, and he thought Elisha wouldn't know. And when he came back in the house, Elisha said, Where you been, Gehazi? Oh, you just feel it. I haven't been anywhere. Did not my heart go with you when you met the man? The flush that must have gone over him. The leprosy 
of Naaman will stick to you and your family forever. Not a mistake. You can just go, okay, i sorry. You're done. And every one of us have been there. And that's what he's saying in verse 19 and 20. He's making this very clear. You have sinned. I have sinned. We do sin. And there is absolutely, positively, no way, no earthly strength, no power whatsoever. We are helpless to do anything about the sin. Verses 19 and 20 are a conclusion that Paul has made for two and a half chapters, trying to get across in the minds of his listeners that they cannot have confidence in the law, that they cannot in any way say, I have kept the law well enough, good enough, or completely enough to have any kind of confidence in the presence of God. This we have to get in our minds. The law wasn't given in order to convince you that you could keep it. That a little shocking? The law was not given to convince us that you can keep this. That was not the purpose of it. He never says it was the purpose of it. Read Deuteronomy. It explodes with the principles of the fact that you cannot do this. It is not acceptable. Remember the rich young ruler? Remember what he said to Jesus? Oh, good master, what good thing can I do to have everlasting life? I used to not be shocked by the statement because I kind of thought I felt the same way. It was a horrifying statement. What good thing can you do? Well, let's just try some things out, rich young ruler. Go keep the commandments. From my youth, done it. You just lied again, dude. (laughs) You just sinned again, guy. And then Jesus How about selling all you have and give it to the poor and 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 come and follow me? What about that covetous command? Let's see how well you did that one. Let's see how well you are doing that one. Major problem. There isn't a good thing we did. Do you remember the words? There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who does good. No, not one. Chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. That's the key. So the foundation. You will never, ever be assured of your salvation unless you know that God did not expect you to live in such a way that He was going to go, Wow! You are so great. I'm just going to save you. You know what? You've done such a great job. I'm going to send Jesus to die for you and take care of the rest of it. You've just been really great. No. 
Paul said in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 that he planned eternal life through Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. So was he expecting that he was going to give the law and we were all go, got it, no problem, not so. Now look at verse 22, or verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been made known apart from the law. A lot of my text here this morning is going to be from the NIV because it is a little easier for the modern audience. It has been made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness of it. Now I want you to notice some phrases here. First off, but now. Now here is the situation. The situation is he gave a law because what the law would do was bring about the knowledge of sin. What the law would do was help us recognize and understand you're not going to be able to do it. And he wanted us to know that completely. If we do not know, if we think in any way that in our effort, somehow, by our effort, we're going to be able to please God enough where he's going to save us, then it is on us and not on him. And that does not give him glory. That gives us glory. And he wants us to know you can't do it. So the law is going to bring about the knowledge of sin. But now, notice the words, but now, God had foretold this was going to happen, but he had not explained how it was going to happen. He simply said it was going to happen. He had made promises all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. He had made promises, and now he's bringing about the promises. But now he wants us to know that the promises are made apart from the law. Oh, I'm so glad for that. The law has condemned me. The law has continually told me I'm a failure. So now he's made known some hope. But the hope and the blessing is apart from the law. He says, in other words, this isn't going to happen. Your salvation isn't going to come through the law. Because if it did, it would always be condemning you. And I don't want that condemnation on you. That's what I have to take away. So now I'm going to fulfill my promise. The righteousness of God you can always understand, is the faithfulness of God to His promises. That was established back in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, when he quoted Habakkuk and, and pointed out how in Habakkuk, Habakkuk learned what it meant that the just shall live by faith. That you would trust God no matter the end of the world that was going to happen at that time. And so here is the picture. God is going to create a holy people, but it's not going to be through the law. It's going to be apart from the law. And then he, he points out then, here then is first and foremost the final answer. God's salvation plan was never going to happen through the good deeds of obedience that people might do. It was never going to happen that way. That is not what his plan was. And now he's going to illustrate it. In verse 22, he says, The righteousness of God is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Now, you're reading, if you're reading most Bibles, more modern Bibles today, they're going to say, Through the faith of Jesus, uh, through the faith 
See, I can't even say it the other way sometimes. Uh, through faith in Jesus for all who believe. You'll notice the redundancy there. Net version, King James Version, marginal readings in NIV, Christian Standard Bible, all point out it can be translated either way, the faithfulness of Jesus to all who believe, or faith in Jesus to all who believe. The second way is a redundancy, plus it does not put the hope in God. How are you saved? How do you have confidence? What is it that happened, Lord, that gave us confidence in our salvation? It was through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to everyone who believes. Now consider that phrase for a second. God's righteousness is simply made known. And what is God's righteousness? It's faithful to His promises. God's faithfulness to His promises was made known through the faithfulness of what Jesus did. Now, do we understand or do we follow that? That's, that's the real picture here. And so we need to see what He says. Do you remember the words, Mark 1, Matthew 3, etc.? When Jesus was baptized, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You remember that? Sure. Common statement. We read over it easily, rapidly. We go, yes, of course, the Son of God, God is pleased. No, you're not seeing the bigger picture here. The bigger picture is, this is my Son whom I am well pleased. Who was the former Son? Who was the one whom God called His Son way back in in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22? Israel is my firstborn. Israel is my son. And then goes on to talk about how Israel was to be the great priesthood. Israel was going to be the holy nation. Israel was going to be a light to the world. And Israel did none of those things. And Israel failed in all those things. And the whole world failed so that verses 19 and 20 in Romans could be said, the whole world has to shut their mouths because they cannot stand before God. But there was a son who came and did. And then that son who pleased God brought many sons to glory, Hebrews 2, so that all sons could please God. There's a picture there that he's making right in that statement when he says the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And then the blessings of the promise, of course, are all who to believe. And if they're to all who believe, then there is no distinction. In other words, Jewish reader and more, I'm a good moral person reader, the faithfulness of Jesus is to all who believe, believe and come to Jesus. The faithfulness of Jesus is to those people, not to anyone else, and therefore your only hope and your only choice is to come to Him. You cannot say to yourself, I have lived a good moral life, so what? You have sinned a thousand times, a million times. You have fallen short of God's glory. You have no hope without Jesus. It is through this. Now, in chapter 9, he's going to say, you're going to argue with the way I'm going to save you? Oh my, yes. Billions of people argue with how God's going to save them. I don't want to be saved that way. I want to be saved because I'm a good guy. Well, tough luck. You're not God, and God gets to choose. That's just the way it is. You can hate it. 
You can be mad about it. I taught a guy one time who was livid about it. That's not fair. You can talk to God about it in the day of judgment and see how that works out for you. You want to have an argument with him? I bet you lose. Don't go down that road. And so then he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, the reason there's no distinction is because everybody has sinned, and you cannot just escape that because you've said you've lived good in that such way. Everybody is that, and therefore everybody's under condemnation, and therefore there's no distinction, and everybody has to rely on the faithfulness of Jesus. No one can obtain that any other way but by trusting in Christ. And verse 24, then he, he gives three great words here, three great concepts here, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now when you see these words, look at that word justified. It is a court term. It is a term that causes us to think of the final verdict on the day of judgment. It is the term in which you think about stepping before God on the day of judgment and He is about to give the sentence or give His judgment on your condition. And He looks at you and He says, innocent, justified. Not innocent because of you, but innocent because of me. Innocent because I did something. And so the next statement, then he goes from that, and he says, here's what I did. I freely gave you a gift. It is by my grace. You see the words? The words imply it has nothing to do with you. The words imply that there is no human being that can somehow justify himself. This is a gift. It was given freely. It's a pure gift. It's by His grace. Grace is now the first time that's used since chapter 1 and verse 5 and verse 7. And now He's going to go off on that later in chapter 5. And He is going to explode the idea of grace in chapters 5, 6, and 7, and 8. But for right now, He simply introduces it. It is the summation. If you read this, you should say, this is the whole Bible story. In one little verse. Everything God has done is so that He could justify freely with a gift totally and completely by His grace. That's what He means. That's the idea. And by the way, who, who did this? We are justified by His grace. Circle His. Who's His grace? Who's His there? It's God. This is God's grace. God is giving grace as a gift. And He did it through the redemption of Jesus Christ. But it is God's gift. Oh, we need to see that. It is God's gift. Jesus did not go to God and say, Oh, please don't destroy them, God. I know you're really wrathful and you're really mad. Please don't destroy them. How about if I die instead of them and so that you won't destroy them? I don't want them to die. And God's going, uh, Maybe. I guess we could do that. Ah. This is God's gift. God and Christ work together here. God and Christ are on the same page. 
This is God's gift. I'm giving my son. Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22 both walked together. This is God's gift. We always need to remember that. Oh, how sad to think of God. Is this God who has, I've got to pour wrath out on somebody. I guess I'll pour it out on Jesus. That is, that is an idolatrous picture. That is an idolatrous picture. A picture of, the, of, the, of, of somehow trying to appease the volcano God by throwing the virgin in it. That is not our God, and that is not the picture here. That whole stuff came out of idolatry. And now understand, and are justified by His grace through the redemption. Justified. Grace. Gift. Third one, here's how. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. When you think of the word, what do you think of? We should think immediately of slavery. We should think immediately of the idea that we were slaves. Isaiah 49 goes into great detail on that and so many other passages in Isaiah. We were slaved and He's broken the prison bars and He's led us out. And when you think of it too, you should think of the entire story. The Jewish reader would have thought of the entire story of Egypt and the Passover and the Exodus. Do you see it? Passover lamb, sacrificed. Red Sea, wilderness wanderings, promised land. I gave you a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I bought you out of slavery. You are not, chapter 7, you are not a slave anymore. Get that out of your mind. How many of you, how many of you and me, how, how often have we lived as slaves in Christ? All I can think of is what a bunch of dum-dums we are when we do that. What are you talking about? We don't live as slaves. We don't live as slaves to sin. He's released us. He's taken us out of that. That's the picture that He's given. Do you remember the words? Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 through 15, speaking to Abraham, Your offspring will be slaves in a land that is not theirs, but I will bring judgment on the nation, and they shall come out with great possessions. You know what that's describing? That's describing redemption. That's describing a rescue. I've rescued you. You are not in bondage anymore. And do you see the words? This redemption is through Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ. It's in the Messiah, Jesus. Oh, now here's the background again. If you've ever wondered why you struggle with Romans, why I struggled with Romans, why this is so difficult at times, is because Paul's always using these little words and these shorthand phrases, and he expects you to know nearly the whole Old Testament in order to get a good concept of it. In this case, one of those main passages would be Isaiah chapter 49. 
Look at this. Isaiah 49, verse 3. The Lord called me from the womb, and He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The context of Isaiah is, the physical nation had not glorified God, but profaned His name. And now, Isaiah 49 begins, and he has this servant song. And he says, you are my servant. Speaking to the Messiah, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. In other words, you are the true Israelite. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Remember, you are the true Israelite. You are the true Israelite who will truly lead Israel to become everything that I have always wanted. You will recreate the nation. And then in verse 6, God said to him, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation shall reach to the end of the world. And what does Jesus say when he bursts on the scene and gives his manifesto? You are the light of the world. You are going to be the ones who glorify the Father. You're going to be the ones in whom God is glorified just as He was glorified through me. Now you are the light of the world. And then Paul says in Galatians 6.16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He's made us His Israel. He's made us His Israel through whom God will be glorified. How possibly could He have done that? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This redemption is an oh goody, I'm saved. Oh goody, I'm out of bondage. Oh goody, this. He is talking about a creation here. A brand new nation. A brand new creation. When we think of ourselves as simply forgiven, it is no wonder that we have questions and doubts when we have fallen short and wonder if He's going to save us. We're not realizing the greater picture. Look what He's done. The new Israel. You are the new Israel. He called you to be the one through whom He would be glorified. And then He says, whom God presented, speaking of Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood, He did this to demonstrate His righteousness. It was to show His righteousness at the present time. Now, when you look at that in your Bible there, in verse 25 and 26, you should notice something. There is a repetition, isn't there? He keeps saying it. He says it twice. The reason I presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood was to demonstrate my righteousness. Now, I did it in order to show my righteousness at the present time. God is totally intent in this repetition of reminding us, I want to make sure you know something. 
I did this through Jesus. I did this so I could show you my righteousness. Now, don't think in terms of righteousness, meaning God is a really good person and he's really righteous. No, righteousness in Old Testament context is I'm faithful to my promises and I will never, ever let you be put to shame. Can you imagine the reflection it would be on God if you and I have lived by faith in Christ and we go to the day of judgment and he goes, sorry, <laughs> you just, uh, I know you put your, your best effort in, but uh, you only scored a, you scored a 64 on your test. 65 was a passing D, but 64 is an F. <sighs> Too bad. Do you know how that, who that reflects on? That reflects on him. That reflects on him, and that's what he's saying in this text. I have done this to show my righteousness, to demonstrate my faithfulness. I have done this. What did you do? You took your own son, and through the shedding of his blood, he re you redeemed us. And on the day of judgment, I'll be, if I'm going to stand there and say, eh, it's close. Oh, man. And then, please, notice what he says. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. He said, I need to justify myself here. I know, I know, in the Old Testament, I passed over those former sins. And I need to justify myself. I need to show you that the reason I did that is because I was going to be righteous and fulfill this. And so, you need to understand, why could I save Abraham? I mean, man, the dude lied about his wife. Why could I save Abraham? I mean, you know, he did that Hagar thing. Sure messed a lot of stuff up. It's the reason I could save David. Wow. Wow, you saved David? Yeah, it's the reason I could save David. It's the reason I could save Moses, who didn't get to go in the promised land. But I saved him. I justify that by what I did and what Jesus did in the redemption that he gave, and it is my gift. That's the picture. Sacrifice of atonement. What did Jewish reader think? Sacrifice of atonement. Well, they'd think the Passover lamb. And John the Baptist saying, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You take about Leviticus. <coughs> in Leviticus chapter 16, the day of atonement. In chapter 5, verse 21, marginal reading, which fits so much better. For our sake he made him to be a sin offering, so that in him we might become, what? The righteousness of God we fulfill. That righteousness that God had planned. God announcing that he paid a price to redeem us. That's how we know. 
He paid a price to redeem us. And if that didn't work, and somehow we're just not going to quite make it, it's on him. And we know it can't be on him. He says, I'm justified in doing what I'm doing. Where then is boasting? Anybody want to boast? Anyone want to say, hey, you know, but I bet, I bet I've really been pretty good. No, no. That's not the way it would be, because that would take away from what God has done. Are we assured? God is screaming at us over and again. You have sinned, and you sin, and it is not because of you. I saved you, and it has nothing to do with you. And the result then is, He's freed us to love Him. He's freed us now to give our lives up for Him without concern and worry that maybe I'm just not doing quite enough. He has given us the freedom to lay our lives down to Him. No more bondage. You live from now on in the love of God and the love for God. Absolute blasphemy. We're not allowed to believe that, are we? We better believe it. Because there isn't any other way we're going to get there. And all that does is humble us and say to ourselves, how much can I give this great God? All that does for us to say, why in the world would I waste my time with other things that would take away from my service to Him. Why would I ever do that? Grace produces love. How can we help you if you have not come to Christ? How can we help you? You need to be buried with Him. You need to die like Him through baptism, as he says in Romans 6, verse 4, and then raise back up to walk a new life in him because he gave you a gift. We can help you. Be glad to do so. All together we stand and while we sing.